Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I am your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Uh, we're going to hit five topics today. Uh, the judge's ruling in Texas on abortion medication, um, how to regulate AI and what that means, um, tech layoffs, a study about the Finns and their secret to happiness, and whether or not you would eat woolly mammoth meatballs. So I think that covers the list. Hugo, how are you doing? Good. Did you see... Um this is not on your agenda, but you did mention it. Um, did you see, you did watch um, Succession. I, I know you did. Oh, I did, did you yeah. Did you want to that to the end or you wanted to? No, it's just, I, I, I texted you as soon as it was over. You know what's so funny? I almost sent you, I guess, spoiler alert if you haven't watched it yet. Yeah, I almost, definitely the, do not listen to this if you haven't The LA it. Times did a brilliant ob- fake obituary on Logan Roy. I don't know if you saw it. I did. It was no. fantastic. Uh, and I almost sent it to you and then I was like, wait, maybe he hasn't watched it yet and I didn't want to ruin it for you. So they just like put it up right after uh-huh. it aired? Yeah. Um, so look, I, it's funny cause the, the moment he kind of went down on the plane, I remember thinking if he dies, that's a really interesting development. If he lives, the show has jumped the shark and I'm not sure I even want to keep watching it. Did you think it was like a fake job? Like he was trying to get the kids to be like, no, 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 I didn't think that it was up. just sort of one of those, like if they were just creating drama kind of thing. Right. And yet again, he almost dies and doesn't. I think it would have been like, all right, the show is, has lost it. But but instead, they killed off probably the best character on the show in episode three of the final season. So I got to imagine there's another six, seven episodes left. So, you know, I think that that takes some balls. I'm curious to see what they do with it. I agree. I, I think the it reminds me, I, I, it's funny, I don't remember anything else about this movie except that in To Live and Die in L.A., they killed the star like halfway through the movie. So the guy you're like following is killed and then you're like what, what's going on? Is that with Al Kilmer? Uh, see, I don't think so. Um, it's like it's sort of like a weird noir comedy thing. It's not comedy, but it's definitely weird noir. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of a different movie. Uh, Willem Dafoe, um, John Pankow. No, I'm thinking um, of some other movie that was not like that, I guess. So William Friedkin, yeah. Wang Chung, remember? remember the, uh, the artist? Yeah, he did. He did the soundtrack. Oh, must be good. Um, <laughs> anyway, if yes. if uh, if if you have not watch Succession, you do watch and you've listened to this. I'm sorry, although we did warn you, uh, but it was pretty great. So in addition to like the ballsy move, you just like the episode that them coping with this. Yeah, it was interesting to see these people who are, I mean, it encapsulated all of who and what they are in a very raw and sort of in some ways concise way in the sense of all of their mixed emotions about how they feel about their father, how they feel about themselves, um, the fact that their life is both public and private, that it is both um, a business and a family. And I think putting that all together, to me, was was pretty interesting. And look, the actors on the show are sort of uniformly outstanding. And so I thought they all did uh, a really good job with it. I actually watched the interviews at the end, which I never do because they're usually really cringy, you know, where they talk to the cast about the Oh, episode. I've never seen those, yeah. And because I just wanted it to go on a little longer. Like yeah. I wanted to stay. I listened in. to a podcast about it after oh, for, for the same reason. Okay. Yeah. Was it good? Did it add to it? Uh, it was an interview. It was two things. It was Kara Swisher, right. and she did an interview with the Jesse Armstrong and the other guy, and that was pretty good. And then she did an interview with Brian Cox, of which I think he's too much like his character in real life to be likable. So while I enjoy Logan Roy as a character, I did not particularly enjoy the right. interview with Brian Cox. Okay. On to the serious matters, yeah. the, the real life. Um so, so you 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 texted me this morning. I guess you were up early and you kind of spun together a. I don't know if it's a it's a global theory, but but you yeah. spun together. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the thing. Yeah, so FDA so, thing. 
as the listeners, I think, may know, we have a history on this abortion medication issue. Um, we, with some other people, helped create something called Mayday.Health. It's an education nonprofit uh, that shows women in red states how they can continue to get access to abortion via telemedicine. Uh, we've been working on legislation in different states, New York currently, to provide extra legal protection to doctors who prescribe this medication. Um, and so uh, it's an issue that we've already been thinking about. But but actually, it, it took me in a little bit of a different direction, which is, the federal government um, has certain functions that it's supposed to do that we are just supposed to respect as its authority for the efficient functioning of a society and of a nation. And one of those is the FDA. The reason we can walk into a CVS or a restaurant or anywhere else and confidently take a medication as long as it's what's prescribed to us or if it's over the counter, take it um, or eat something or whatever else is because we have a functioning food and drug system that actually works extremely well in terms of protecting consumers. Um, doesn't mean that it's not inefficient sometimes, doesn't mean they make the right decision every time, but by and large, you know, there are things in government that we talk about a lot in this podcast that do work. There are things that don't work. This one does work. Is in the do work. Yeah. Oh. And, and when you have a federal judge in Texas or anywhere, um, now striking down an FDA-approved medication based on purely personal That's ideological years reasons. Old too, the, yeah, the, the approval. Right. Um, to me, that undermines the rule of law to a point where you start to wonder: Okay, if if every federal decision by the FDA or any other agency is now just going to be purely interpretive based on whatever jurisdiction you happen to be in and the politics of of that judge and whoever appointed that judge. Um, the long-term stability of society itself to me seems to be at risk, not unlike, quite frankly, and people on the left won't like this part of the conversation, but Alvin Bragg's indictment of Donald Trump also, I think, undermines the rule of law. Um, I think it was an indictment designed by Bragg to make himself a national figure, I think, to distract attention from what a horrible attorney he has been. Um, but I think he's going to lose this case. It's an incredibly weak case. There are some potentially really strong cases against Trump, especially in Georgia, especially January 6th. I would love to see him prosecuted and in prison for those things. Um, but fundamentally, by Bragg t bringing a case that really just wasn't there, um, you're now inviting prosecutors on the other side to say, OK, let's find a way to indict Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Hakeem Jeffries. And it'll go on and on from both sides, because if all anyone cares about is their own bubble and their own ecosystem, whether it's Alvin Bragg on the far left uh, or this judge in Texas on the far right, Kazmarek or whatever his name is, um, then they all have sort of equal incentives to continue to do this, and and their interests are not mutually exclusive with each other, right? Because they don't actually care about the outcomes. They just care about the process. And so if you now have FDA decisions being overturned for political reasons on a local level, you have indictments being issued against presidents and political leaders without any real valid basis to do so other than politics, um, I think we get to a point where it, it, we are at a destabilizing moment where I wonder whether or not this country can continue to function. And, and a good contrast would be this. So Ron DeSantis today came out with, or I guess it was in the paper today, yesterday, an immigration plan that was kind of what you would expect, right? The harshest, nastiest, most anti-immigrant thing you could possibly imagine. Terrible, but still to me within the bounds of the politics we live in, which is he's running for president. Uh, the Republican nominee is going to be picked on the basis of sort of who is in many ways the most right wing. All he cares about is his nomination uh, or potential nomination, and therefore he can say or do anything he has to possibly do to get there. To me, mobile voting, for example, is a solution to that problem, right, which is the reason why 
um, being wildly anti-immigrant is successful in a Republican primary is because Republican primary turnout and Democratic primary turnout is so low that the people who vote tend to be the furthest left, furthest right, depending on what party you're in. Um, and as a result, you reward that kind of behavior. And you could argue that the same thing is true in that Alvin Bragg's primary uh, for DA of Manhattan, same kind of thing. Um, or while the, the judge in Texas wasn't elected, you know, Trump's primary in 2016, which then led to his appointment, uh, same kind of thing. So arguably mobile voting can help with all of these. But I have to say that there is a level of politics of where we are today based on polarization that I think, you know, we can address with higher turnout, especially in primaries through better technology. Then there's a more fundamental breakdown just in, in, in the fabric of society that, yes, I do think mobile voting could possibly help a little bit. But overall, I start to worry about the viability of a country um, that now all of a sudden sort of is willing to do things like strike down FDA rulings for political reasons or indict former presidents of the United States for political reasons. Uh, on, the, on the Texas court ruling, so obviously you're working with Mayday, as you said, um, what's the next like battle? Like how is that? So the next battle for – there's a few things. So there's the ours and then the broad, more broadly. Ours, unfortunately, is – we cannot get the, the New York State Senate very quickly passed legislation that will provide protection to doctors in New York who prescribe medication that ultimately is shipped to women who are in red states, um, that they can't be extradited, they can't be prosecuted by Mississippi or wherever it is. Uh, now, you can't if, – if that doctor showed up in Mississippi, you can't stop Mississippi from arresting them, but right, at least if you're in New York, you're okay. Right. The assembly – and I don't think it's out of ideological, but maybe it's just a lack of – intellectual capability or what, but can't wrap their head around this concept. And they keep saying, well, how could a doctor who's not licensed in a state prescribe medication to someone in that state? Because that's the fucking point. The whole point is women in these states have lost the ability um, to have access to a basic right. And yet technology is such that the state can't really prevent them from accessing it through this. And so we want to incentivize doctors as much as possible um, to feel comfortable doing so because, yeah, it's great that telemedicine can get abortion medication um, to, a, to a woman in a red state or a state where abortion is banned, not every red state, um, but it doesn't matter if there's not a prescribing doctor on the front end. So um, sadly, the, the New York State Assembly staff, and it's just a bunch of bureaucrats on the staff, seem incapable of wrapping their heads around it. Uh, there are some rumors that they're being prodded on by Planned Parenthood who is threatened by this notion because it's a uh, attack on their own business model of bricks and mortar. I really hope that that's not true. I, I just can't imagine that they would be so callous as to believe that. So I'm, I'm going to well, accept that's they, not the case. Why aren't they organizing to do this too, though? Uh, because their business model are physical locations where women come to to get health care and to get abortions. And I guess their concern is that if, if abortion became basically a – telemedicine medication prescribed thing, they would no longer need to exist. I mean, one thing I have learned, and this is true in the hunger space and the abortion space, everything else, and I'm, I've seen on the left, I'm sure it's equally true on the right, which is you have all of these nonprofits run by people who are well-intentioned most of the time, usually politically kind of mediocre to, to poor in terms of their effectiveness, but they become institutionalized. And the success of their organization and the survival of their organization takes precedence to the success of the underlying issue itself, right? So whether it's 
hunger groups who are so afraid to make anyone in politics mad that they would rather see fewer kids get school meals than possibly put their own reputation at risk or a Planned Parenthood that is worried about um, you know, their own efficacy of their business model long-term being challenged because of the development of telemedicine. Um, people become focused on the fact that the nonprofit is what pays their own bills and keeps food on their table and makes them feel relevant and makes them feel like they're doing something important, even when they actually undermine the actual progress of the issue that they're supposed to care about in order to preserve their own organization and their own operation. So uh, that's a sad fact that we're in. But the broader answer to your question is what's going to happen on, on the my personal uh, issue. So a judge in Washington state ruled that it was legal. A judge in Texas ruled that it was not legal. It's going to go to the Supreme Court probably pretty quickly. And it's going to be interesting, right? Because there's there's two strong arguments as to why the court is going to support the decision in Texas. One would be it is a court that generally does not believe in the right to choose and does not want to make that access available to women. And there's six people on the court now who feel that way. Um, the, the second is uh, this is a court that because it is so Republican, so conservative, tends to lean towards state rights. And they may say, well, it's fine for this to be a local decision. We'll let, you know, we'll let every state. So the states are going to be able to pick which FDA approved. Uh, like uh, you know, probably initially through litigation and then maybe through legislation. I don't know. But yeah, it's that, that's the direction we're heading in. The other outcome would be that these are still nine people who are not idiots and they understand the absolute chaos that would be sown if they were to uphold the Texas decision and therefore they do strike it down. How much hope do you have in that happening, in that outcome? 25%. 25%. Yeah, not great. Okay. So I uh, I despair for our democracy today in our country. Um, well, let's talk about a really cheerful subject, AI. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, so the the... It's it's funny how things that happened like three days ago could suddenly seem like they happened months ago. Um, but the there was a uh, an effort to uh, by sort of organize a bunch of influential people, opinion makers, etc., um, to um, to sign this petition um, suggesting that we not suggesting but arguing in favor of a pause in the development of AI. It seemed like kind of a like a silly, almost childlike um, idea. Like, oh yeah, I, let's I think it was a bunch of people who wanted to be seen on the record as demonstrating concern so that if history ultimately judges this as here was the worst thing that ever happened to humanity or one of them who right. was on what side, they want a clear record that they were on the against <laughs> side. However, it gets back to ultimately, it, you're not going to stop the development of technology, right? You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We know that. For example, we did Uber. The reason why we would go into a city and launch without permission is because once people started taking advantage of the products and how much better it was than taxi, they weren't going to stand for returning to the old system, right? The genie never goes back in the bottle. So it, the, the letter is silly. Um, the question is, what would regulations be that would create the right financial incentives for people in the AI industry, in the technology industry to behave the right way? And I think listeners are going to feel like that's a little bit of me as a broken record, but it actually gets back to the same issues we've been talking about in terms of regulation of basic social media, which is section 230, section 230. So section 230 is a law that was passed in 1996 that says that platforms are not liable for the content posted by their users. It was a necessary law 
when passed to, to facilitate the creation of the internet. However, now it creates perverse incentives for Facebook, for Instagram, for TikTok or whoever to really promote incredibly toxic and harmful content because it makes them more money. If they were liable for the content itself, just like newspapers are, just like TV stations are, so this is not a novel concept at all, um, then they would have to use stronger content moderation, um, which would mean they'd make a little less money, but at the same time, it would not, you know, have sites on Instagram teaching young girls how to cut themselves, right? So um, in many ways, I think the AI thing is kind of similar, right? Which is, so you want the ability to clearly distinguish this is real, this is artificial, right? It's literally called artificial intelligence. And um, the only reason why platforms would invest their resources to be able to correctly label everything and proactively label when they'd probably rather not label it because... The more content, the better. The more confusion, the more clicks, the better. Um, but the only reason they would is to say, look, if you are promoting artificial content on your site and not marking it as such, you are legally liable for fraud. Um, and if they were legally liable for fraud, then all of a sudden, guess what? They'd figure out how to market. And if they weren't sure what it was, they just wouldn't let it go on in the first place. And so it seems to me that the same regulatory change that we need to make the internet better generally, to make social media less harmful and toxic, is actually the same regulation that we're going to need to be able to at least deal with this part of AI. There's lots of different components of AI, but at least the misinformation piece of it. Um, and while we haven't really seen a lot of strong political progress around repealing Section 230, we've heard a lot of people call for it on both sides of the aisle, including the president and the State of the Union. Nothing's actually really happened on it. Um, I do think that fear of AI is strong enough that it may become a different vehicle to advance the same concept that could be more politically successful. Have you heard it's like already cropped up in the kids' school? No. A bunch of uh, a bunch of students who are, uh, I don't know, busted might be too strong a word uh, for, for using uh, chatbot to write papers. Oh, yeah, not, not surprising at all um, whatsoever. Although I still have to say I'm still generally down on chatbot GPT in the sense of I've now used it. 30 times, and I'd say I've, I found utility in it once or twice, and, and those once or twice, I'm not sure that uh, two Google searches wouldn't have yielded the same result. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, 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 it's kind of a funny toy, but it doesn't have, I mean, you can see where it would develop, but the, the, the actual utility of it right now is... Yeah, I mean, even little stuff like I wanted to go to galleries on the Lower East Side, the neighborhood that we're in right now on a Sunday. Galleries are often closed on Sunday. And I just said, like, make me a list of tour of, of galleries that are open on the Lower East Side on Sunday. And the information was wildly inaccurate. It was just like some were open, some were closed. And I ended up doing the same thing that I would have done before, which I just went to each website and figured out who was open and who was closed. And I made a little list and I plotted out a map in my head and I went to the galleries. So, so what like, is the percentage of galleries in the Lower East Side that are open on a, uh, on a Sunday? Less than half. Generally speaking, galleries are closed on Sundays. If you go to Chelsea, it's it's West Chelsea, it's dead on Sundays. That seems so crazy. So they're open on like Wednesday afternoon with like I, I literally look, not a soul in there. This is not the, you know, this is not a 24-7 industry <laughs> where people are working their ass off. Uh, in part because, in fairness to the gallerists, that's not how they make money, right? They don't make money by people coming in off the street and buying art off the walls. They make money through private sales, and the gallery itself is effectively a marketing tool and a loss leader. So I understand that if if you're not going to generate enough additional exposure, why would you want to have the additional cost of, of staying Also, I'm open? sure if you're a big collector and you'd like to come by on a Sunday, they'll make I'm sure they'll make it work they'll for make you. That arrangement. Um, are we done with the AI discussion? Yeah. Are we, are you you want to move on? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, we were going to talk about uh, the tech layoffs. I watched your... Um, 
your uh, your CNBC hit. I was it was amazingly substantial for a TV hit. Like you guys actually had like a kind of a long. Well, because you're it was me and your buddy Sorkin, yeah, and buddy, Andrew is is very intelligent. I, I have to. I really like going on TV with Andrew uh-huh. because it is the closest it gets to a legitimate conversation. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just like three questions that I know in advance and I've got my sound bites and I deliver them. I didn't even know, by the way, what Andrew and I talked about was not even what I was told we would be talking oh, about. Oh, what were you supposed to talk about? We talked about like, my proposal to require social media platforms to notify the feds when activity oh, right, uh, right. spikes on, a certain, on financial institutions. Yeah, you didn't touch that on We didn't touch all. on that at all, which yeah. is too bad because Richie Torres, congressman from the Bronx, who's coming on the podcast, I think, in a week or two, yeah. um, introduced legislation last week to require that. So I'm really excited about that. And I was hoping to use the CNBC hit to promote it. Instead, we talked about layoffs by big tech companies and by startups. And I kind of felt like I came off far more um, lefty than I usually do on this stuff. Lefty. In the sense of I was making the case that the companies are looking at things from a macroeconomic perspective. They're looking at signals from the market, signals from the Fed, signals from different experts and data. And they're making broad-based decisions on we're going to lay off 25,000 people or whatever it is to try to get ahead of these markers, right? right? And the problem is, you know, these are fucking people's lives, right? Like the 25,000 people are 25,000 real people. Neither of us know 25,000 people. So imagine everyone we know times five or whatever it is right. all lose their livelihood, can't feed their kids, can't put food on the table. And I understand that if you had a good job at Meta or, or Amazon or whatever, you're probably not going to starve tomorrow, but yeah, one, like, uh, yeah, I mean, there is human consequence to all of this. Look, if a company says, and we've had startups in our portfolio that have had to lay people off for sure because of the economy, um, this is revenue, this is runway, this is how much we can project to be able to survive for without raising more money again. And we don't think in this climb we'll be able to raise more money for X number of years or months or whatever it is. Therefore, we need to get our costs burned down to a level that allows us to survive that. I, I get that, right? And by the way, I'm part of those decisions sometimes for our portfolio companies. But when you're these giant platforms and you're literally making these, these calls with tens of thousands of people at a time, it says two things to me. One, there's just no fucking sense of humanity at all. And I'm not sure why being the CEO of a major corporation means that you have to turn into an automaton or whatever that word is and and like just lose all human emotion and feeling and care and everything else. The other thing is these are our best and brightest, the people at Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Apple and all these companies. And they admit they can't get their hiring right by tens or hundreds of thousands of people. They literally can't figure out their needs even to within 10,000 employees. Like the fuck's wrong with these people? Well, I think there was, I I guess, a bit of a land grab or something during the, during the pandemic and immediately after when the employment market was so tight and people were just hiring as, as much as they could. I mean, that story in the wall street journal about people who literally don't do anything working at these companies. Yeah, I, I saw mean, that. It was, it's, it's actually pretty funny, but ultimately, I mean, I but, think- But shame on Facebook. I think it's always fucking Facebook, right? <laughs> always. They're the worst. Meta, it's meta. meta whatever. Yeah. Shame on that. But like, at the end of the day, this is sort of the boom and bust cycle that we live in that on one hand- Well, that's a part of the conversation I thought you were really good with, Andrew. Like, the, the, the we're living in extremes for the, the sort of, what used to be called, what, irrational exuberance. Yeah, it was the, uh, what was that, Powell? Or, no, it wasn't Powell. It was- um, Greenspan. That's Greenspan's term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what's the opposite of irrational exuberance? I think irrational pessimism, right? Right, right. So what what Andrew and I were talking about was the Fed's decision to continue raising interest rates creates, in my view, the self-fulfilling prophecy that as money supply tightens and tightens and the availability of capital declines, um, 
companies pull back because they don't think they're going to have to access cheap money going forward. And as a result, they try to reduce costs. From an economic standpoint, that is not irrational at all. However, um, sometimes I think the signals that get sent then create behavior that didn't have to be that way absent the signals in the first place, right? And yep, so yep. by the Fed continuing to raise rates and raise rates, and by the quarter of a point, which is the most recent one, was just the worst of all worlds because it, it, it sent all the wrong signals without even like addressing inflation or anything else. Um, but, but when you do that, you're creating the same perverse incentives that like we talked about before with Section 230 for these platforms, which is like, oh – if I lay off 50,000 people when the, when interest rates go up 50 basis points, um, the market will reward me for right. doing so. And I will either have a less of a drop in my share price or I can even maybe have an increase in my share price. And everyone's gaming it out again. Doing the exact same shit. Too. Yeah, the same shit. And it's, it's the same stuff on the bottom and on the top. And it's either we're making – you know, wildly irresponsible investment decisions, whether it's massively overhiring people or uh, in, in VC where we fund companies that don't have any kind of clear business model and you're just saying, look, I don't care about unit economics or profit margin or EBITDA. I just care about growth at any cost and we'll figure out the business model later. That's an absurd thing to say. Um, just like it's absurd to say because the Fed's going to raise interest rates, I don't want the analyst at Forrester or whatever it is to say something negative. So I'm just going to destroy the lives of tens of thousands of people to prevent that. Either way, it's really fucked up. All right. Let's get to the, 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 the Finns and their strategy for staying happy. Yeah. Um, tell me what... Um, uh, what what did you learn from the Fins? I, I mean, what are you learning from the so, Fins? So, so the Fins are interesting, right? Because they are always ranked at the very top of I, I know you hate them because you're Swedish. No, no, I do not hate them. Inner inner Ness and you know the, the, the New York Rangers have warfare. two great Finn players, so I, and they're very moody looking, though I have to say these Finn players. Um so the Finnish are generally happy the happiest on these surveys. Um Scandinavian countries in general tend to sort of score the best um, because they are wealthy, homogenous countries that wealthy, homogenous, socialist, generally well-run countries with kind of people who are following consistent norms across society. And so as a result, behavior is often more predictable and better. Um, at the same time, um, they also have incredibly high suicidal rates so it's a, and, and alcoholism. Yeah. So it's, it's a little confusing. But But the point of this study was to say, the Finn's secret to happiness is not ecstasy, it's contentment. Um, and that what they do really well, and again, these are individuals because you have a lot of Finns killing themselves or drinking themselves to death, so they're clearly not all doing it really well. <laughs> but for those who are, um, it's recognizing what I want and what I need are two different things. And happiness is based on having what I need and being okay with it not having what I want, because when it's what I want, it never ends. That's the hedonic treadmill. So the notion of the hedonic treadmill is such that um, you just, it's never enough, right? You buy more and more shit and you sort of, the dopamine hit lasts less and less each time. You have to sort of get fancier and fancier and more and more. And it's never enough, which is why you see billionaires who are either, you know, committing financial crimes because they want even more money or just miserable because they're, you know, um, because the, they're losing the rat race in their view or they're buying huge yachts as opposed to doing things that could actually help people in the world that would make them actually feel better about themselves, quite frankly. So um, we know this to be true, and yet we live in an economic system of capitalism that's designed in the exact opposite way, right? The point of capitalism is to make you feel like your life will only be better and complete if you have 
this toothbrush, this kind of bottled water, this type of car, whatever it is. And all of advertising effectively meant to prey on your insecurities and fear of I'm not happy enough and this is what I need. And when I buy this thing, I will be happy. And then, of course, social media, Instagram especially, exacerbates that tremendously, right? Makes it exponentially even worse. Um, And so I guess where the Finns sort of have it figured out is to realize, you know what? That's all fucking marketing, right? That's all just companies trying to manipulate me to make more money. Um, And I don't need all of this stuff. And if I can figure out, here's what I need to be happy, and I can be content with that, um, my odds of therefore being at peace are significantly higher. And I have found this in my own life lately quite a bit, which is... um, I think I have stopped living in the future. I have stopped sort of just setting these crazy ambitions for myself and saying, I'll be happy when I save democracy. I'll be happy when every kid in this country has enough food, whatever it is, and saying, you know, one, I'm trying on this stuff. And am I making progress? I think so. I think the food stuff, we're making material progress and the voting, hard to say, but we're the only ones doing anything on this front. So so some progress, I guess. Um, And that's kind of good enough, right? I care enough to try. I care enough to take most of my money instead of buying stupid shit, spending it on on things that I think matter uh, a lot more. Um, and I have a feeling of contentment from the effort of doing so and from the victories that we do have. Um, and I don't anymore feel like in order for me to feel satisfied, I need to achieve something truly historic and be recognized for doing so, right? So I, th- I think my need for validation from my work has decreased significantly and that has allowed me to become much more content with what I have. Um, Someone asked me the other day, like kind of, you know, where do you see your life in 10 years? And the answer is really like hopefully where it is now, you know, I mean, different in the sense that I have different ideas and I pursue different things, but I I like the structure that I have where I can kind of come up with different types of concepts, whether they're for-profit, not-for-profit, intellectual, creative, whatever it is, and, and have the the team to pursue them, people who I like working with, um, and a mix of things in my life that make money, of things in my life that impact kind of public policy, things in my life that are personally just rewarding, um, things that are creative and intellectually stimulating. Um, I like what I have, and I kind of just want to keep this going and, and basically for the rest of my life. Um, but in many ways, that's also, I think, a sign of... of some wisdom on my part and some acceptance of, I don't need, I, I know I'm better off with knowing what I need than what I want, right? What do I want? I'd like to win a fucking Nobel Prize for solving democracy through mobile voting, right? It's probably not going to happen. But even if it does, it, if I'm miserable until the moment of that ceremony- do you want the prize or you want to save democracy? Both. Okay. I want to save democracy, but I know then myself you, then, well enough to know that you, I, I also want to be recognized yeah, for it. Yes. But- so what? So let's say you get to go to Sweden for that. If it was Finland, that'd be more interested. Um, so um, let's say that that was what all I was working towards, right? Sounds so fucking necromaniacal. All right, but whatever. Um, okay, so let's say in 30 years that happens, or 25 years, like we, we finish building our technology, we build a movement, we force every state to have to allow it. It moves politics towards the center. The stuff we talked about at the beginning of this podcast no longer is much of a problem. The country functions much better. It is recognized that that's what we did and then uh, celebrated through the award of a prize or or whatever it is. Um, Even with all that, so what? For the next 25 years, I'm just going to be miserably working towards this goal saying I will be happy when this one arbitrary fucking thing happens, right? How about instead it's like, no, I'm happy because I am trying to help. I am trying to make the world 
a little bit better, trying to make our country a little better. I'm only one person. There's only so much that I can do. I've come to sort of understand that and recognize that. Um, but, um, you know, it's it's contentment with the effort of trying to do better and recognizing that that's all I can really do. And that's enough. Right. And I don't have to actually solve the problem itself um, to, to feel good about myself. And so I, I guess when I read that study, what it said to me was it just kind of confirmed the track that I think I've been on recently in terms of kind of recognizing that, you know, what I need is a lot more important than what I want, especially because what you want is influenced by so many external factors that usually aren't even factors that are looking out for your best interest in the first place. Should we um, push Woolly Mammoth? To yeah, let's, 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 let's do it fast because we've already pushed it once. Okay. So, so it's really not fair so to, a- to Woolly Mammoth to keep pushing it. <laughs> It goes nicely with Finland too, Willie Mammoths. You know, sort of were that where they were? No, I don't think that necessarily. But you know, they're a sort of snowy. You know, I don't know. Yeah, they're bear and people. Well, yeah, I mean, in, not in Finland, but Bob went to um, Latvia and had bear. Had bear. Yeah, he said it yeah. was it was not great. Well, um, so so this the reason we're talking about eating Willie Mammoth is because there's a there's a sort of food startup that has the ability to take the DNA of these sort of exotic species and grow meat, um, which then you'd be able to eat. And so we were talking about what obscure meat source would you be willing to, I mean, I guess you try anything. I would pretty much try anything. And I guess. Alpaca, peacock. I mean, it would just be like, look, it's first of all, it's, it's all artificial, right? So like, you could call it peacock, you could call it candy. It wouldn't make a difference, right? A really bad kind of candy though. Well, unless it tastes delicious, right? So, you like, peacock tastes as good as candy. You think there's any chance? I've never had peacock, so I'm not sure. I have had candy. Um, so, I guess the point is, yeah, of course I would. I mean, I've tried. Of course, I like knowing me. You know, I like trying weird shit, right? right. So, like, wait, what's the weirdest you've had? We talked about this the other night. We had this dinner on snake? Saturday. No, I didn't have snake. I've had kangaroo. I've had alligator. Um, I've had. I guess those are probably the two most out there. I mean, when we were at dinner, someone had antelope. Was that you or is that Ross? I've had antelope. Okay. And then someone was making a big deal about ostrich, but I didn't quite understand why. I thought that was a reasonably common thing. I didn't talk about ostrich. Um, But but I'd say kangaroo is probably, oh, alligator. They say alligator? Um, Yeah. So um, I had alligator not that long ago in New Orleans. Uh, In fact, Lyle did, Lyle joined us for dinner and he had a alligator too. Um, Wait, so did you have like a full meal of alligator or just taste it? He had alligator bolognese. Okay. Um, at this restaurant, Cochon in New Orleans that I really liked that has kind of like a chicken nugget version of alligators um, <laughs> that tastes basically like chicken nuggets. But, you know, chicken nuggets can taste pretty good. It's like it's going to be a little chewier than your average chicken nugget. I think it depends on what part of the alligator you get if you yeah. stay away from the tendons. But the point being, yes, uh, if – to me, there's no logical reason why you wouldn't create – eat a genetically engineered product, just if, if it happens to taste really good, the question is, are there enough people like me or you or Lyle or Ross who would say, you know what, I would get a kick out of trying what William Mammoth was supposed to take, like, taste like, what peacockus must taste like, and therefore I'll spend money on this, right. right? Is there a business? Is there an industry? I would. You would. I don't know that that's the norm. And in fact, arguably, the people who would are the kind of people who moved to places like New York City in the first place and choose to live here. So maybe you could do it in like a couple of places. Um, I don't know that it's going to be sort of a widespread, you know, go to Kroger's and at the uh, yeah. at the grocery aisle, everyone's getting, you know, woolly mammoth. Um, your recommendation of the week? Uh, 
book called Romantic Economy by Curtis, Curtis Sittenfeld. I know that's sort of considered a little, little basic, but... Uh, Why is that basic? Just because she's like a mass mainstream romance type yeah, she's great writer. Though. But I really like her. I enjoyed the book quite a bit. I kind of devoured it. Um, and uh, so I would say that. Um, and then I started a book over the weekend called Saving Time by William Jenny O'Dell that is the opposite. It's a very serious book, but it's sort of a... Is that the one you want me to read? The Jenny O'Dell book? Yeah, I'm about a third of the way down. And are you going to finish it? I think so, yeah. Okay, it's so we'll it's sort of, week. yeah, we'll talk about it next week. But, uh, and then Chip Wars is still going to be on our, on our list somewhere. Too. Oh, it is? I okay. think so. Some friends of mine the other day heard us talking about it. And said, I they, no, they then read it. Oh, really? Um, as a result. Influence yeah, I know. And I went to the Mets game with them yesterday, and I was like, "Well, I got to read it now." If you guys read it, so <laughs> I didn't even read it. I talked about it, but didn't read it. Exactly, it's on the list. So I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. So anyway, all right, cool. All right, Hugo, thank you. Um, oh, for the listeners, a couple of things. One, um, I always fucking forget this. Uh, if you can, please rate and review us. We'd really appreciate it. Second, we uh, are recording from PT Knitwear. It's a bookstore and podcast studio on the Lower Ridge side of Manhattan, 180 Orchard Street. Uh, would love for anyone to come by and check out the studio or buy some books or a cup of coffee if you can. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>